I'm Alex Del Soro with the Rowers Choice Network, and this is another round of podcast interviews, season three, episode six. I still can't believe after all this time that I get to do this for a living. And today I'm talking to someone who's had a major impact in the sport of rowing. And funny enough, you may not know about it. And that's a big deal for the future of rowing and what we we're going to talk about today. So I have with me Anita DeFrance. Anita, you got a whole story and I can't wait to dive into this, but my first question, I ask this to every single rower I interview, where were you when you picked up that oar? Talk me through that, that first time in a boat. Okay, I was at Blood Street Skulls of all places, which is in Old Lyme, Connecticut. And I had walked past a guy who had this thing in slings. I knew what slings were, but I didn't know what was in it. I went over to acquire as to what it was. And he says, it's rowing and you'd be perfect. And I thought, well, there's a line. I've never been perfect for anything. Uh, but I said, well, what do I have to do? He said, can you swim? I said, absolutely. Since I was four, I said, well, meet me in the parking lot with others at five o'clock next Monday. That would be a.m., not p.m. And I thought, whoa, okay. I'm not doing anything else then. I guess I'll be there. And so we drove in the bus, rode in bus out to Blood Street Skulls, and it was quite a scene getting the boat out of the boathouse, getting it into the water in one piece, and then having us climb on board. And if I were to remember correctly, if I took more than 20 strokes that first time, it would have been a miracle because most of the time the oars were flopping all around and it was, it was just a mess. So but, Anita, how old how old were you when that happened? This is high school, I imagine, right? No, 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 no. This is my the, the fall of my sophomore year in college. I Whoa. grew up in Indianapolis, oh. Indiana. I learned to swim when I was four years old because of, uh, of the YMCA, which my father and grandfather were closely affiliated, and uh, that was it for me at the time. There was no organized sports for girls, at least with my skin tone at that time growing up. So it wasn't until college that I had a chance to organize sports and being a Hoosier, of course, basketball was first, um, but then rowing and rowing was in the morning, which did not interfere with basketball practices, which were usually in the evening and the uh, seasons didn't quite overlap. So it kind of worked for three years. Wow, so wait a minute, this is, this is wild. So, so, okay, Hoosier got it, Indiana, you have Larry Bird, you got the history of basketball just so in, strong in where you grew up. You go to Old Lyme, Connecticut. So what college did you go to at the time? I went to Connecticut College um, <laughs> at one time called Coco for Woe. We changed it with co-ed to Coco for Woe and Bo. By the time I was there, it was in their uh, second full class of, of men and women. Wow. Okay. This is... All right. Both is, programs at the same time. Wow. All right. So you, Connecticut College... Uh, there's a history of rowing in the Northeast, clearly, right? Like where you were, rowing has been around at that point, a hundred plus years, right? Um, so then you, you're playing basketball and you're also rowing. So I need to know, I need to know, first off, what year was this and how tall are you? Because if someone uh, said you're perfect at rowing, I imagine it was a height thing. I'm sure of that because there was no other evidence of an athlete in me at that time. Um, I was 5'11 and a little, little bit more perhaps, but my father was 5'11, so I couldn't be taller than he was, of course. <laughs> so, thank you, Dad. Thank you, Dad. Um, uh, so I was tall. And, um, 
and they were desperate for bodies, of course, at the beginning <laughs> of recruitment. So I said, okay, I'll give it a try. But the thing about the sport that I loved, even despite the beginnings, which were a little bit bizarre for anyone, um, was the fact that you're free on the water. You don't hurt anybody. It's a non-violent sport. We're environmentalists. We put the water back exactly where we got it each stroke. Um, we do no harm to any other person. And while once you get good enough to be able to meditate as you row, you can solve all the problems of the world. So wow. what I enjoyed about the sport was the freedom on the water and the freedom from all other terrestrial tides. You know, it, it, you, you remind me of a poem that um, George Pocock wrote years and years and years ago. And, and, I, and I don't want to butcher it right now, but the first when you said, we're environmentalists, we're, we're doing no harm to others, and we're putting the water back as we found it. And then this harmony thing of where you're in a Zen moment and you can solve your world's problems. Uh, that is very George Pocock-esque, and I really appreciate that. Um, now, for, for my purposes and understanding the timelines, what year was this when you first started rowing? Okay, that would have been the fall of 72. That wow. right, my sophomore year in college, my freshman year was 70. Okay, so actually it's fall of 71. So this, this predates Title IX, this predates... I mean, it was all happening around the same time. I knew about Title IX because my mother was doing her best to get promoted at an institutional higher education institution and getting nowhere fast. So Title IX was really originally enacted to help professors, women who were working to be promoted in education. That was, and in fact, in all the legislative history, the word sport arises one time. One oh. sentence included the word sport, period. So, but some clever attorneys, not I, it was well before I became one, um, figured out that if it said education, it meant all aspects of education, equal educational opportunity. And so that meant, of course, at the collegiate level and high school and so forth, if you're investing in sports, it's for both girls and boys, period. Wow. All these people who rail against Title IX, no, you should rail against your administrators at your college or university because they're the ones who are disenfranchising you. It's not the law. It's the administration at your uh, educational institution that's making the wrong choices. You know what? It's like, I, 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 it's so funny, Anita. I never knew that. I, I, I had no idea there was just one sentence in there that brought it equal in sport. I thought the main focus was that, but wow, that is, that's an interesting thing. That's a, what a wild thing. Um, and what a wild time for you to, to be in sport in college. Uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine what that was like. I mean, first off, we all know our sport is predominantly white, predominantly male. Now, now you're coming in with a different skin color and as, as a woman, is there anything that, was there any moments where it stopped you from rowing or were there moments where you just got nervous and just didn't want to do it at all during those first couple of years? I don't know. I don't remember it. It wasn't a big enough of a moment to stop me. That's for certain. There were some oddities, of course, along the way. Um, 
when my parents, after I graduated from Connecticut College uh, and moved down, I had been admitted to Penn Law School, which made my parents ever so happy. But I'd also hooked up with the, the folks at Vesper. And I got an apartment through, uh, uh, first of all, I have to mention Fred Emerson. Fred Emerson funded almost all of the programs for women in rowing in New England and a lot of the men's programs. He funded both the men's and women's program at Connecticut College and at the Coast, Coast Guard um, Academy, as well as many other places. So Fred Emerson, thank you for doing what you did for us. Um, yeah, great so, so now, So now you, you, I mean, this, I love this where this story is headed. You go to Penn Law School, but now you're going in the 1970s, you're going into the best place to row in America. Like Boathouse Row, Philadelphia, there's nothing better. And you're rowing at Vesper. Uh, I, I don't know enough about women's rowing at that time. I could name I could name a dozen men that changed the sport forever. Who were some big powerhouse women that you rode with that you can remember back in those in that era in, in Vesper? Well, we were at the beginning, so we were all powerhouses. We were all <laughs> the beginning, all of us. And once you put that V on your back and got to the starting line, you knew you had to perform because Vesper had a tradition of creating world and Olympic champions. Vesper opened its boathouse to women the moment that women's rowing became an Olympic sport. And I arrived um, maybe three or four years after they'd opened it. You know, there were still some guys there who, who were for some reason confused by women rowing. It's like, guys, get over it. You'll be fine, don't worry. We had a locker room that had been the um, office home of, uh, of uh, the coach, who, Dietrich Rose, who had left Germany and, and he came to Philadelphia to coach at Vesper. Um, we used to go outside to warm up. It was so cold in there in the winter time. So it was, it was incredibly modest is a kind word to use uh, for our locker room. And, uh, but we got on with it. We just, did what we were there to do. And the guys clearly didn't want us there originally, but as they saw how much we worked and how hard we worked, we even began rowing together. Wow. And there were yeah. marriages that came out of that as well. Let me just go ahead. New rowers <laughs> brought to the world. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Now, so you, uh, again, continue this story. So um, what was your successes in that period of time at Vesper? What Tell me some of your, your rowing accomplishments. Well, I, I started by saying my parents had uh, driven me from Connecticut College down to Philadelphia. By the way, I was born in Philadelphia, as was my older brother. So they're kind of happy about that. And they had told us about Penn as we were growing up. And the Penn Relays was probably the only collegiate sport which did not bar people with different skin colors from competing. So Penn already had this thing for me and, and the Quaker the background as well. So I figured they'd be very happy if I was going to Penn Law School, and they were. The Vesper part they weren't so sure about. And then when they arrived at my uh, apartment where we had to pay roaches even to get into the front door, let alone to the actual apartment, uh, the look on my parents, I knew this was not where I would be laying my head. So fortunately they had friends from the time they lived in and my brother and I were born there. Uh, and so I wound up uh, 
spending the summer looking for a place to stay, but living out of my parents' friend's house rather than Gus. By the way, Gus Constant and his wife. Uh, why am I blanking on her name? Uh, Karen, Karen. I mean, Karen was probably Coxon size always, but she wound up stroking our mighty eight in their early days because we had what we had and we made do with what we had and we became mighty Vesper. <laughs> with that. So um, my first real test at Vesper, I didn't realize it at the time. I still don't, I'm sure that someone helped me finance the travel to the world, to the nationals that year, which were in, um, uh, in uh, Oakland. And uh, so, okay, they put me out in a, uh, uh, a weary to learn the skull. And then they said, okay, wow. championships. I said, fine, we get there. So, okay, here's your boat. It's like, what? I'm racing? Yeah, you're <laughs> racing. I said, what? Okay, so I get in the boat and I go out. And I said, something's wrong. I come back and say, what's wrong? I said, I can't, I, there's something wrong. I can't steer it. And they look at it and say, oh yeah, there's no fin. Work it out. <laughs> no one has probably seen one of these, if ever. It was so long ago. One of these ancient wearies that probably weighed, I don't know, 300 pounds. Um, and uh, you had to get the blades in together or you would be off course so fast if you were any progress down. And it was, of course, a thousand meters at that time, which is one of the most, well, we'll get to that later. But I think looking back with many, many years, more than 40 years in retrospect, I think yeah. I impressed them by doing that. I didn't know any better. It was the gig I got. And I just dealt with what I got, which had been a part of my life from the beginning. You deal I, with what you got. I love that. I love, I love the gig I got. I think that that's fantastic. Now, this is what? This is this is 75, 74, 75, like around that, around that time. Because I know it would have been the summer of 74. Summer of 74. 74. Yeah. Okay. So then, so then fast forward because uh, a huge moment in your life and in general is the Olympic Games. I mean, the 1976 Olympic Games. Well, getting there, it's not a moment, but getting from uh, being demoted to JV my senior year. I didn't say that before, did I? At a New England coeducational liberal arts college, I get demoted to JV. Uh, the coach says to me later, the same one who said, you'd be perfect. He said, well, but if you work really hard, you can make the Olympic team. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I couldn't make the varsity at a small New England liberal arts college. And you're telling me if I work hard, I can make the Olympic team. Hmm. No, 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 no. Then I realized critical thinking is so important. And I'm sorry I didn't start out by saying critical thinking. You've got to do more of that. As I applied critical thinking, I thought, ah, he needs me because if I don't continue to row, the four will not be able to continue. Wow. And I can't do that to the rest of the team. Um, so I said, okay, okay, this Olympic thing. My dad wanted my older brother and me to be the first uh, African-American members of the US swim team. He never mentioned the gold medal thing, but I'm sure that was a part of it. But uh, we didn't make that, but the chance, you know, something in the back of my mind was still there. But here I am going off to a prestigious law school and then thinking since I was a JV rower at Connecticut College, I can make the Olympic team. If only 
Vesper would show me the way. And Vesper most certainly opened its doors to me and helped me find my way. Thank you, Vesper. Wow, that's another big thing. I love that. Now, in, in, in Philadelphia, I know you made the Women's Eight. How many women were out there vying for one of those spots at that time? Okay, well, may I tell the story in two steps? I'll try not to take too long. The year before the trials and so forth for the 76 team, um, Vesper had gone to arbitration. I know this is unbelievable because we felt that forcing everyone who wanted to be on the team to go to a camp in Boston, might have worked had been in Philadelphia, mind you, but in Boston, all of the women worked. We had to, there was no way to support ourselves otherwise. And uh, people having to leave their jobs for the possibility of making the team when there were still trials opportunities and such just seemed like we can't do that. So we won the arbitration, which meant that if our eight won uh, the national championships, our eight would represent uh, the US at the world championships in 75. We did not win the eight. Uh, Wisco shocked us. Um, and as fate would have it, there were three Wisco women in the Olympic eight in 76. So it was a shock with a purpose. Um, and, uh, and the coach, one of the three coaches for the Olympic team was Jay Memier, who coached the Wisco. By the way, only rowers say Wisco is so amazing. Ask anybody from the University of Wisco. We're the only people who call it Wisco. I don't know how it began, but it's just a fact. You know it's a rower if they say Wisco. Yes, that is so, that is so interesting. You're right. Wow, I love that. So Vesper, you guys lose to Wisconsin. This is 1975, and yeah, women go in. A little known fact that I got permission from Pam Behrens, who was the stroke of our eight, and also a, a critical care nurse who clearly had could not just take time off and, he, and you know take a week or two off just to see if she could make the Olympic team. Um, both she and I were asked if we'd like to attend the camp on the weekends instead of throughout the week. Uh, there was a large chance that we could make the team, but we'd need to be able to be up there uh, each weekend. And uh, we looked at each other and uh, it was easy for her immediately. She said, no, I can't. I have my, uh, my career and I cannot leave uh, the patients there. And for me, it took maybe a second or two longer. And remember, I'm just two years into Vesper. And uh, as much as I appreciate it, I think an Olympic team or not. Then I realized that if I left, this is 75, not the 76 vote. If I left the four, who would row the four? Because mm -hmm. the four had qualified. I said, no, thank you very much for the offer, but I got to stay with the Vesper. So and for all these years, and even in, sometimes, and I've finally seen the picture, so I kind of know why people accuse me of being in the 75-8. I was not. Hmm. But, and uh, uh, I was near, <laughs> and I might have could have been. I was in the four, which was from Vesper. Uh, so the next year uh, was the actual trials, and I think 100 to finally answer your question, I believe 100 women were invited to the camp in Boston, led by the wonderful, great Harry Parker. His assistants were Nat Case from uh, Yale, Jay Mimier from Wisconsin, and John Hooten from Vesper. 
And uh, we started the camp in, in I think mid-June and the games were like mid to late July. So we were kind of close. And we spent every day starting at it's seven or eight but it was already 80 degrees no matter what time it was sure. out on the uh, you know and the uh, power plant stretch of the Charles and then all of that huh, we did seat racing for days and days and days <laughs> I can't uh, imagine. oh yeah but, it's funny, Anita you could still you can still feel and remember those seat races and I'm sure they were five to ten minutes long and I'm sure it was Pull them aside, swapping. Oh no, longer? Were they longer? No, shorter. No, oh, shorter. All of the coaches knew one race, 2K, maybe 3K and others, but 2K. We were only racing 1K. So they didn't know how to train us for 1K. They just didn't know. Some of my figures thought, you know, it's like, well, we'll just, who knows what was going through their minds, but all they knew was a 2K race. And yet we were, and I will say this because it was only guys, there was one woman. Uh, Nellie Gambone from uh, from uh, the Netherlands, who supported women's rowing in the sport, and thank you, Tommy Keller, for finally being persuaded to include women on uh, the Olympic program. And until that happened, it wouldn't I'm, have happened. I'm I'm, I'm I'm confused really quick, Anita. Did you race the Olympics in a 1,000 meter piece, not 2,000 yeah. meters? Yes. And get this, it took 40 years was it 40 it must have been 40 years for the rowing uh, hall of fame to induct the boat into the hall of fame and originally it was because we we're merely bronze medalists not gold medalists of course we're up against the german democratic republic and the soviet union two countries which no longer exist in part because of their doping um but there you have it. We will every time I look at race, we come in third, and that does, does it. This but is then, but then, but then uh, in the in the history of time, I said, well, okay, uh, but it was a bronze medal. But we noticed other people who were not gold medals. Yeah, well, because the men weren't winning gold medals, they decided the governing group decided, well, okay, it doesn't have to be a gold medal. It's like, oh, well, but. So Jackie, as our stroke, was the spokesperson for us. And she said, you know, recognize, of course, of course the great Harry Parker, who we just lost the year before. Um, and she said, you know, the very best thing about this is that you've inducted us into a Hall of Fame and we're all still alive. Oh. Yeah. I like that. Now, yeah. okay, I, I pride myself, Anita, on knowing quite a bit about rowing. And here, this proves that we need to be more educated on women's rowing because I had no idea, no idea, as someone who's been doing this for 21 years, that you only raced a thousand meters. And I know women's Henley in England still has a different distance. I, I understand that. Yeah, because that's approximate distance anyway at Henley. It's sort of this long. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but, but when did in the Olympic rowing, now I know you have a long history with the IOC and FISA, and we'll get into that in a minute, but when did it switch to 2000 meters? At the Olympic games in, in Seoul, Korea was the first 2K Olympic regatta. Wow. It took us three years. Why did it happen? Again, they were all men making the decisions because that's all who were in charge of, of, of the, the sport. 
And they, I guess they thought, okay, women, let's say half the distance that men are. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. So half the distance. Please, come on guys, you gotta do better than that. So it took us uh, three quadrennials to get that right, but we did. My and there's another God. woman's name you need to know, Monique Berlieu, a French woman, also an Olympian, who um, uh, competed in swimming in, uh, gosh, it was after the war. Anyway, um, she was a journalist. And at the time, she was a, the, um, essentially the executive director of the International Olympic Committee. So when the proposal, which must come from an international federation from FISA came up for women's rowing, and it set out the six categories, uh, boom, all six were in, which was not the intention, but because Monique Berlieu had said it passes. Now, there's more to the story than that, but she's the one that made all six events come in immediately, which was unheard of. And unfortunately for us, because it happened immediately, it took us till now, basically till Tokyo, which was last year and this summer at the same time, um, which is very funny to me, as you can tell, um, <laughs> we'll have the same number of boats. We had eight and six for decades. It's like, guys, seven and seven, seven and seven. It's very easy to do this. <laughs> All you have to do is switch, you know. So finally, for Tokyo, which was last summer and this summer, we'll have seven and seven. Thank God. Wow. Okay, so let me get into, uh, you, you, you get a bronze in the 76. I know you boycott 80. Not, not me. No, 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 not you. Your president, President Carter, boycotted the 80 games. The athletes, some of us wanted to go. A lot of us wanted to go. Anyway, and you, you, you obviously, I mean, as an athlete, you want to go, you want to attend. So, well, to make the decision because I had made all of the investment, not one penny of federal, state, or city government had gone right. into me becoming who I was. So, I was the one who had the only one who had the right to make that decision. Wow. See, I, I, as much as, I, if, if we had six hours of talk and record, I would get into that. And then that's a, that's a very important subject, but I do wanna talk, and forgive me here, I wanna talk about a couple things, your involvement with the IOC and FISA. Now, let me preface this by saying, rowing is not as popular as other sports it's clear right and there's always talk at the ioc like so trickle down right people hearsay say that the ioc says that if something doesn't change with rowing it's out of here it's gone now you had a major role in the ioc in fisa talk to me about the current state of rowing do you think that we need to change to get popular do you think that we need a better audience like give me the state of the of, uh, of rowing where you see it Rowing for me is this odd sport, which has great respect. If you say you're a rower, everybody says, oh, that's really hard. It's like, but that's all they know. It's really hard. And we have a great worth ethic, us rowers, we do. Um, and we tend to be good, good people in organizations. We tend to rise to give back because we're good team players. We know what it means to get up at God knows what hour to be at the boathouse waiting around for everyone else to appear to go out and punish ourselves. And we come back, you know, 12 hours later, typically to do it all over again in the evening and maybe again, who knows? But it's the nature of our sport in part. We're not braggadocio. We don't shout, hey, look at me if you're in an eight. 
um, that's the last thing you want to have happen. You want to be a part of the engine that's moving the boat efficiently. So in part, it's the nature of our sport. But the oddest thing is the profile of rowers. Now, this is an old study, uh, which I remember from my days as a vice president of FISA, where 75% of rowers internationally had college degrees. No sport has that kind of profile, 75%. And 60 to 65% had advanced degrees. What is a sport? While, while people are competing, not afterwards. I mean, at the same time as they're competing. Wow. So it's got an extraordinary profile, but we've never been able to do the right stuff. And I blame it in part on, um, it's even got, to me, it's even gotten worse with the bicycles riding along the races, because it looks like, oh, you can ride your bike. That can't be that hard. Meanwhile, no one knows the output of work that's going on. So I've long wanted someone to calculate uh, how much work is being done so people could know. It's like, I do this thing when I want people to see how hard it is where I stand up and do one of those like burpee things and then go back down. I said, do that, do 30 of those and tell me how long it takes. Yeah, if you need to rest, you can. You can't do that in the boat. But, and then people get an idea of how all encompassing, encompassing, this, the, the activity of rowing is and what they will not know. And we're not supposed to talk about this. One time I brought this up at a visa meeting. Like, Don't say it. Oh. I, I said, it takes courage to know that you're going to put yourself through a lot of pain. Don't say that. I said, okay. And so I completely stopped until the, bo the book, The Boys in the Boat came out and they talked about it. Finally. You know, so it had to be someone from 36 talking about it before we could talk about it in the 21st century. And so you, you no, no, this is, listen, for the last year and a half, we've been saying the same thing and, and Rowers Choice, our organization, we want to do what's right. We actually want to promote athletes and showcase how great they are and how great these humans are. And you just said amazing things. I wrote everything down. Great respect, great work ethic, good people tend to rise. We give a lot back to our community and to the family. We respect how hard it is to do what we're doing, but we never talk about it. We never do a good job talking about how great we are, yet you look at every other major sport and all it is is braggadocious. Everything they do just talks about how amazing they are and then what they've been through. And then hearing from you, a 1976 Olympic medalist, who also was part of FISA and, and IOC says, it's the same old message, we need to change it. Like we need to do something to showcase our courage and our ability and our strength because then more people are gonna to wanna to do it, right? I mean, that's, am I saying that correctly? That's my thought about it. And uh, the other thing that more recently I did one of these kind of, call this something else, coffee cup, chats or something with the current leadership of FISA. This was last year, I guess. And I said, the most important thing is to be intentional. Don't say it's a problem and say, oh yeah, that's a problem. Do something about it. Be intentional as you move forward. And one of the most important things that we never do is we only talk about the medals. We never do stories on those who worked hard to get there, but did oh. not succeed. And, and sometimes those stories are as impactful on others who might want to try the sport as winning a, a medal. But we don't talk about that. 
I, right. I'm getting, Anita, I'm getting chills because you are exact, saying exactly what we have been pounding the pavement on. I want to, I want to, you said something, you said be intentional. All right. So here it is. Last year, everyone knows the fabric of our country split in half. It was like they tore it like a piece of paper and we were impacted greatly. And then the biggest thing that U.S. rowing and, and not just not not the organization, U.S. rowing in general, we kept talking about diversity in our sport. And having traveled the country, having spoken to hundreds of coaches, I don't think that we have been intentional. I think there's a lot of chatter on social media. There's a lot of chatter on out out there. But when I actually talk to coaches and I talk to parents, there is no change. Anita, am I, am I speaking out of turn? Is this correct? I mean, I don't think that we've been intentional after a lot of chatter happened uh, last year. Well, I'm going to leave that to the individual clubs and programs because only they know whether or not they've been intentional and only they know whether there's been any change. But I will tell you about um, AMBT, a most beautiful thing, a program that's now out of the Pocock uh, Rowing Center. It's a foundation and they're going to be promoting rowing for all in seven cities. It will be announced soon. Uh, a lot of the work has gone into that and, uh, you know, it's really intentional. It will happen. There's another program on the East Coast and I have lost the name of it in my so-called uh, brain at the moment, which is doing similar work. So it's happening out there. And there've been programs like Row LA and Row New York and, and uh, I guess the Cambridge program, which I, I know it's a little different, but it's, it's Row Boston. Anyway, there are programs out there that are doing it. And of course, because women's rowing is saving men's football at the collegiate level, there are lots of scholarships available. At least there used to be before COVID. We'll see what happens. And so it, it's a natural thing to let parents know that their kid, if they get involved with rowing, will graduate. Mm -hmm. And just say it like that, because we tend to do that. And to make it an educational opportunity. And then once you finish college, your chances of being hired, especially as a woman, if you've taken part in a team sport, are like 98%. So it's, like it makes a huge difference. Your study of 75% of rowers have college degrees. I mean, there, there, there's, and that's enough history there to say that without, without question, it's going to happen. Now, I, I did not know about, I know about the most beautiful thing. And, and I've, I've had many conversations with Arshay um, and Mary and a number of others. Um, I'm just wondering, like, what are tangible things that clubs that are still behind the curve can do? Can you, can you give me a list of things that these teams can do that may not know what to do? Well, ask for help. That's what I tell anybody who's concerned about their future. Ask for help. So if you are a club that is intentional about making changes, you ask for help. You go to people who've made those changes and U.S. Rowing has information and U.S. Rowing Association can be helpful about clubs that might be in your, your regional area or you know might be across the country but have similarities. And you can learn from them on the mistakes made. I mean, Row LA, for example, this city transportation wise, I guess it was better when everyone had a horse instead of everyone not having a car, but public transportation barely exists and get to get to uh, Marina Del Rey, high school kids were kind of at a loss and some of them took an hour a day to get to the boathouse on public transportation. And that makes me 
silent for a moment because high school's already tough enough. Mm. And then to be doing something like rowing, which no one knows or understands at a venue that no one's been to. And then for races that nobody goes to, how do you explain that? Well, because of the sport and what it provides to the individual. And uh, it's worth it, yes. And a lot of those girls in, at Row LA went to colleges, some even to my alma mater, Connecticut College. And it works. This stuff works. So find out what the outcomes are and don't expect to replicate them immediately and find out about all the work. Often learning how to swim is a baseline issue because for a long time, people with my skin tone were pre prevented in some cities, they even filled in the pool when they were told they had to desegregate. Jesus Christ. So there's this history of this. And what I tell girls, look, why doesn't this hurt if I pull this out or cut? No, pulling out might hurt. If I cut it, it doesn't hurt. Why is that? It's dead. It doesn't matter. Once it's out of your scalp, it really doesn't matter. If it's still stuck in your scalp, it might hurt if you pull it out. But this stuff, but hair has been made such a big deal for girls and women. So, for too long, swimming has been a, a no-go because you don't know what will happen with your hair when you come out of the chlorinated water. Yeah, and it seems so stupid, but that there are barriers that have societal barriers that have kind of been embedded and we just need to get rid of. For me, I usually start every speech I give with, we are one race, the human race. We are all the same and yet each of us is unique get over this nonsense. One race, they're not divisions of races. We're all human. We're not birds. We're not dogs, we're humans. We're all the same. And we need to get rid of this nonsense, which has been put in our brains to make us divide. Oh, no. Enough of it. I mean, you're, there, there needs to, uh, I don't know, you said that you could give speeches. There needs to be more speeches that you give because you grew up and were raised in, experienced an era of massive change. I mean, the world has drastically changed since the time you were, what, 12 years old, 10 years old, till today. I mean, and you, you've experienced it. Um, do you get a chance to go out and talk to a lot of young athletes? And like, do you, do you get a chance to be in front of them? Because they need to see more of this and hear more of this. Well, in two weeks, I will have lived at home a year alone. All right. <laughs> so prior to COVID, I was happy to do that as often. I'm happy to do uh, video conferences, um, but it's not easy these days. I know I need to go over to the boathouse to, to at least wave at the kids, but I'm not sure when, when they're practicing anymore. Everything is disrupted. Uh, I'd love to. I'm happy to. It's important for me to share what I've learned. What, what good is it otherwise? I just keep it to myself not particularly useful yeah right now you said the boathouse which boathouse are you near where are you where where are you living uh, row la and it kind of has a boathouse it has a place where the boats are kept and uh, we've been working on towards getting a community boathouse in la which is you know land is always the struggle out here because land is more valuable than practically anything you put on it <laughs> so it gets tough out here and land adjacent to the ocean is also in so far, they haven't figured out that the water's gonna rise, but anyway. Now, do you, now Anita, do you still get a chance to get out in a boat and row? I mean, I, I know- have lots of, I have lots of chances, but you know, 
I can talk to myself anytime. I can do it right here. I don't have to be out in the middle of a large piece of water to do it. <laughs> so I prefer, I am a team person. If I can't be in a pair or a double, why bother at least? You know, fours and eight are much more fun. Uh, what was the last time? What was the last time the 1976 group of women got together and 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 rode or at least experienced time together? Okay, can you do the math and add 40 to 76 for me? 2016. Yeah, we rode an eight at Sarasota at the, the trials and a part of the induction our induction to the Hall of Fame, and we get there all of us. Yeah, yeah, we love you, rode, and we flip the boat over. And it was, it was, uh, who was, oh gosh, uh, he used, he was the head technician for a long time before that he had been at Princeton. Oh gosh. Kurt? Curtis. Yeah. Curtis. Curtis. Uh, yeah. No, Curtis. Kurt. Yeah. That's, yeah. Curtis. Yeah. You're right. So we flipped the boat over and everybody's looking at us like, uh, and I'm sure I opened my mouth. I always do. So, Hey, this is starboard stroke. And he looked at me and he said, deal with it. <laughs> 40 years after our Olympic bronze medalist, deal with it. We had not been together in a boat. Some of us had rowed, some of us rode. They have trials every year, others do not. Um, but we got into the boat and I tell you, this is the first time I ever stroked an eight. I'm stroking the Olympic eight from 76 and it's like, it's so humiliating. Look, at there is film. And I did the most rookie thing at all. I'm used to following someone. The coxswain's sitting right in front of me and I'm talking to her and she, you know, I've known her forever, Lynn. And every stroke, I look out to make sure my blade is still there. Uh -huh. Such a rookie. I'm so embarrassed because <laughs> I didn't know what to follow. I had nothing <laughs> to follow. And that was what I was very good at, following someone else. I wasn't stroke, really. I didn't no, know how, how, did, how, did, how did it feel? I mean, how, how, how was that getting back in and feeling that momentum and movement and power? Well, I can speak only for myself, of course, because each person experiences this noble sport uh, their own way. But for me, it was just magnificent. And we did stuff. My favorite thing to do is show off technique because that was a very big deal in Desperate. Not so much at other programs, but we were able to set the boat after we weigh it enough. Oh, yeah. And we set it for like, I don't know, maybe 20 seconds. It was amazing how it just, oh, yeah. It was, everybody was amazed. <sighs> but we just held steady. So for me, that was the best part about rowing. We could do it. We could do it well. We could do it cleanly 40 years later. What a beautiful, what a beautiful story. Now, Anita, um, You've been doing this a long, long time. You've, you've been at nearly every level of rowing. What advice do you want to give to, um, say, a young 15-year-old girl or a young 15-year-old boy that is just finding rowing for the first time? What, what, what advice do you want to give that person? Ah, there's so many things um, to do, uh, but make sure you're having fun. If it's not fun, you're not going to enjoy it. And you know you need to take a break and come back maybe later when something has changed in your life or in the, in the team's life, that'll make it fun. Because what's the point? You're doing a whole lot of work. It's not at all easy. Um, you can't really talk to your friends back at high school or wherever you are uh, about it because so few people know. 
Um, so believe in yourself. And that's the most important thing for a rower at any time. If you don't believe in yourself and you're getting the boat with eight other people in an eight, I know, we know the math thing. Um, or if you don't believe in yourself, you're no good to the boat. So well, there it is. I, yeah. I love that. It's, it's be sure to have fun and believe in yourself. That is coming from someone with 50 years experience in our sport. Anita starting at Connecticut College as a sophomore, someone who said, hey, you should probably row at five foot 11, ending up a bronze medal in 1976 Olympics, and then being at the head of the table at the FISA and IOC for many years. Anita, thank you so much for doing this with us today. I, I, I learned a great deal. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure and thank you rowing. Thank you for all that you've given to me. And I hope in some way I can give a tiny piece of that back because it's really improved my life. Thank you, Rowan.